and welcome to the Money Magic Podcast with Pangile Makwakwa. This is the podcast where we talk about trauma and how it affects our finances and our lives. I help women of color unlock ancestral wisdom so they can fall in love with their bank accounts, increase income, and live their best lives. This podcast was birthed when I started having conversations with private clients and students in my online courses about the remarkable shifts they'd had in their finances and started receiving feedback and updates from people on how these conversations were helping them understand their family dynamics and financial behavior. I've seen how unlocking ancestral wisdom has helped me pay off $60,000 in debt, buy property, launch and grow my company Wealthy Money into a six-figure business in US dollars as I travel and live in various countries on the globe. I've lived in over eight countries and traveled to many more as I built this company. My intention with this podcast is to provide you with weekly episodes that help you understand the importance of healing and help you understand your relationship with money better so you can start making different financial decisions and creating a life you love for yourself and future generations. So without further ado, let's get started and dive into this week's episode. Money Magicians, how are you? So we are on episode 16 of the Money Magic series. Last week, I did a whole um, episode giving you guys a sneak peek into the bank account challenge. And this week, I have my friend Laurie Jones, and she's going to be talking to us about trauma. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Vangile Makwakwa, and I am the founder of Wealthy Money. I teach people how to heal ancestral money trauma so they can fall in love with their bank accounts and live their best lives. Without further ado, welcome, Laurie. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So... Laurie, tell us who are you? Tell us about yourself. What do you do? Who are you? All that good stuff. Okay. So pretty much like you said, I'm Laurie. And <laughs> what I do, um, and pretty the way that I like to describe myself is just really giving more about who I am as my background and how I identify my role and just my identity. So I identify as a black woman um, and I was a person who was raised in the South um, of the United South, meaning the United States. So culturally, the North and the South of the United States is vastly different. So I identify as a Southerner um, and I live in the Northern part of the United States in Boston and I, identify also as a daughter, as an aunt. (laughs) Those are parts of my identity. And I also, as far as career, I am a therapist, I am a clinician. Um, And I have worked in a wide 
array of things. Um, so I have been a crisis clinician, meaning that I prefer, I, I supported different people who were in crisis at different hospitals here um, in Boston, mm -hmm. in the Boston area, um, or if they were in crisis, like mental health crisis, I would go in, assess them, and support them with different resources. And wow. I've what do you mean by crisis? Like what makes a um, mental health issue a crisis versus a non-crisis? So a lot of times when it came to crisis, um, if a per usually we, we had a crisis line. So people would call in and if yeah. they made threats to harm themselves or others, that in itself is a crisis. Yeah. Um, or if they're displaying mm -hmm. certain behaviors where they're want, they may want to harm others. For example, there's times when I'm called to a home with children and the child may oh. be having a tantrum and throwing things um, and becoming more of a detriment to themselves or others. And so I would be called in to do a mental evaluation um, to determine if the child is still safe to stay in the home, if maybe they need outpatient therapy, if they maybe need hospitalization, just oh. different resources that they may need to help them to deal with whatever the crisis is that's causing that behavior. And then also crisis could be even using substances. Um, I've been called in to evaluate and see if someone needs assistance in regards to substance use, um, maybe they have overdosed or came into the ER um, and emergency room and had a high level of alcohol, a high blood alcohol level, and they may need mm. detox. So it can be various different things like that that can determine a crisis. So, oh, wow. yeah. so that was a part of that was one part of my work, but I've also worked in private practice where I did individual and, and couples counseling, um, where I would see people privately through their insurance. Um, so here in America, many people receive services through their insurance, um, where their insurance pays for it. Some people will pay out of pocket. So I provided therapy, um, and private practice. I have also worked in different nonprofits um, where I have one nonprofit in particular. I helped, I helped different um, organizations across the country and globally with learning about a coaching approach to move people out of poverty. So I supported mm -hmm. them. I trained them in the approach. Um, so yeah, and currently <laughs> I've had so many hats, <laughs> but currently, <laughs> currently I'm an um, employee assistance program clinician, so I support people um, that may be having workplace stress and dealing mm -hmm. with well-being and tying them to resources and then also providing brief counseling. Um, so mm. counseling. Brief to, counseling. Yes, brief counseling. So about eight sessions or so, either oh, to wow. help them to address a particular issue 
or as a bridge of transition to a long-term counselor? Mm, this is so, so fascinating. Because I think that like with 2020, we all gonna need help in learning how to grieve because so much has happened in this year, you know? Yeah. And I think often we associate grief with uh, maybe grieving the, loss, uh, grieving the loss of a loved one. But I also feel like we need to grieve um, the loss of the systems that yeah. we're leaving behind because these are systems that we knew. And yeah, they were terrible and super traumatic, but most of us are like, oh my gosh, what's next? What's new? So that can also be hella traumatic. So there needs to be a grieving of everything. The loss of our identities, of who we now are as a people, people who have lived through a pandemic. We weren't those people in January 2020. We are now those people. We need to grieve that as well, the loss of that identity of like being able to just go anywhere <laughs> and do anything. We now know something different. So I'm loving the sounds of that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and you're right when it comes to the grief, because that is something that we really, even with the work that I do currently, we're seeing that. And even when I worked with other nonprofits, um, they were seeing that in their staff. They were seeing a lot of their staff wow. going through the stress, going through the grief of yeah. that ship. I mean, we all felt that. I know I felt it because I'm an extrovert by nature. And being in America, as y'all yeah. know, a lot of decisions were made in regards to how COVID was handled. And we're now in yeah. a place where we're still working from home. We're still working remotely, a lot of us. Um, we can't go oh, into, wow. yeah. And so we've been working from home since a lot of, in Boston, it was March 13th, I think, when everything just really shut down and everyone started working from home. Mm -hmm. And here we are, end of September, still remote. So, Whoa. yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking the um, intense mental strain for people that have, that were not prepared to work virtually, to work from home, and are extroverts, you know? Because everyone talks about like working remotely, it's awesome, but as someone who has been traveling and doing the nomad lifestyle, what I would often come up against um, are people that start the nomad lifestyle and they're like, I don't like this. I don't like that I have to work on my own at home. I'm like, please never change this. <laughs> I love it. I don't want to see people. I never get up. I never leave my room before 2 p.m. Don't make me start to leave my room before 2 p.m. But I saw a lot of that. Um, even long before COVID, which is people just going, I cannot work at home on my own. I need a co-working space. I need to be around other humans. I need to talk to them. So now with COVID and those options are not there and people were not prepared, 
I can't imagine the strain on people's mental health. I really cannot. And even thinking about that, Van, and thinking about how you mentioned about the nomad lifestyle. Yeah, mm. you have a choice. Yes. When during this pandemic for a lot of us, we don't have the choice. I don't have the choice to just go in the office. My current job right now, the office is only open on Monday and Wednesday where I can go in and grab things. I can't, I can't just go there anytime I want. I can't just sit in a coffee shop so that I can be around people. I yeah. feel those a lot of the coffee shops around here, they have outdoor seating and a lot of people have to wear masks and it's, it's a lot of distancing. So yeah. I can't have that normal conversation of sitting beside someone in a coffee shop and engaging. It's, it's yeah. that different. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's really different as yeah. especially as an extrovert and just grieving that part of it. So just being yeah. able to allow yourself to process that and to have that compassion and saying, okay, this is different for me. Yeah. What you've just said is so powerful, Laurie. I, I'm so glad that we're actually having this conversation. Guys, the reason why I invited Laurie on is so that we can talk about trauma. We didn't plan to have this part of the conversation, but this is what I love about these interviews is that they take on a life of their own, right? So Laurie is here because you guys know that I work with trauma and it's like the thing that I love talking about, but I thought it would be great to have a licensed therapist come and talk on her view of trauma, right? Her understanding of it. So that I think is gonna be so much more powerful for, uh, for us. So, but before we even jump into this, Laurie, I'm often, I was recently asked why I do the work I do, right? And I was like, that is such an interesting question. So why do you do the work that you do? What is it that led you into therapy and this work? Okay, so I'll be honest. Um, when I was in undergraduate, my, my major was computer engineering technology. No. That, that was my major. How um, did I not know this? Yeah, I thought I told you this, man, but I guess I didn't. No way! How yeah. did I not know this? So guys, Laurie and I have known each other for a long time. She's even come to South Africa, to the village, to visit. So we've known each other. Like, I can't know. This cannot be information that just slipped. What? Yes, in, yes. in high school, I loved computers. I was good with computers and I said, okay, computer engineering, that's my thing. I was good in math. I was taking calculus, making, <laughs> and I said, okay, let's do computer engineering because money, wow. money. And then I got into school and I was, something was like, mm, this isn't me because again, I'm an extrovert and my concern yeah. was was with computers that being introverted and being away from people and I love yeah. I love talking with people 
<laughs> and so I was one of I was searching and going to the career centers in college and talking with different counselors. And one of my friends said, Lori, why don't you be a counselor? Why don't you go into psychology? Because that's your gifting. People come to you for advice. And I never realized that about myself. And I really thought about it, about how I was when I was younger and how people did come to me for advice. And also I'm a researcher. Um, like a self-proclaimed researcher. I don't do research professionally. Um, <laughs> I mean, when I was a, in, when I was younger, and we'll talk about the religion part later. But I grew up Christian, and I would research the Bible. I would exegete. I would do mm. the scriptures, and I would just really research things and. When I learned more about psychology, I said, okay, this is really tying those two things together because psychology is the study of the mind and mm -hmm. of the And it ties in that what I like to do, supporting and connecting people through and working with them through their journeys, as well as that research side, because there's so much research in psychology in regards to the human mm -hmm. mind and behavior. So that's how <laughs> I got into the field of psychology. And I went, went on with that it, through my undergraduate. And it was just amazing because I was just making A's and I was just really enjoying my courses. And I went and pursued my master's and got my master's in counseling psychology. Um, and then I moved to Boston <laughs> and the rest wow. of So, yeah. This is so interesting. Wow. I feel like, I don't know why I always thought like, obviously you woke up one day and you were like, I'm always going to be a therapist. I'm always going to be a psychologist. But like, because uh, it's so obvious. As long as I've known you, people have always come to you with their problems. <laughs> so, I'm like, this was a no-brainer. <laughs> so that's it, interesting. It wasn't for me. I remember when you said that, I remember when I was a little girl and I wanted to be a nurse like my mother. That was one thing I wanted to be. Then I wanted to be an obstetrician. Then I wanted to be a writer. And I went through various things that I wanted to be, and here I am. <laughs> so wow. it's never linear. <laughs> it is so interesting because, like, it's interesting when you hear what people do, and then you hear that they even doubted that that was their path. Because yeah. it's like, obviously, this was your path. Like, it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's true, and I, so, I yes. doubt at times. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but I feel... So, Laurie, what does trauma mean to you? Pardon? Oh, I was just saying I feel that that's just who I am, that this is who I innately am, being a therapist. That is, actually, this is who you innately are. Like, as long as I have known you, that was always you. Yeah. <laughs> that was just it. 
So it's so, it's interesting, but the fact that like your friend also knew it. Sometimes it's like people will see things in us that we don't see in ourselves. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) So how do you define trauma? All right. So when I was thinking about this conversation, thinking about trauma, so one thing, one caveat that I like to give, because when we talk about therapy and we talk about different therapists, different therapists have different niches. They have Mm. different areas of expertise. And so Mm. when it comes to trauma, that is something that I feel that I'm continuously learning. So I don't profess as a trauma specialist. I profess as a person as being a clinician that is constantly learning more and more about trauma. Um, Mm. That I'm researching and gaining more and more knowledge so that I can support different people that I work with more effectively. And so when I think about trauma itself, I I see trauma as an individual experience. A lot of Mm. times we see trauma as being an event. Like you may see you may see something out there that happens and you're like, oh, that event is traumatic. For some people, it may be, and some people, it may not be. So one thing I wanted to really mention about trauma, because I, like I said, I'm a researcher, so I read a lot of books and articles. I'm a bit of a nerd (laughs) um, in that regard. And one person that really is like a a master on the topic of trauma is Bessel van der Kolk. And mm-hmm. he is a researcher. He's, yes, he's a, psych, he's a researcher here in Boston. He has the yeah. trauma in Boston and he has different trauma conferences and so forth. And the yeah. way that he really defines trauma is as something that overwhelms you. It overwhelms mm-hmm. your, your coping capacity and it brings yeah. forth thought and that feeling that everything is all over. You feel like you're about to die. And so when I think about, so when with trauma, it also alters the memories and the story of what happened in that moment. And when I think about trauma, I, and I can talk about this more in detail later, but there's another Again, another professor, <laughs> another researcher, Dan Siegel, and he talks about um, the stress response and the flipping of the lid. And so, trauma is something that it overwhel- it's that experience, and it's that overwhelming of that coping capacity, and you mm-hmm. literally flipping your lid. You're literally reacting to survive. You go, you kick into that stress response and so a good example when I was thinking about it and a story that I thought about was about my mother and I so when I was a little girl I remember I went on a walk and I was walking down the street and there were some dogs barking and one of them jumped the fence and started chasing me so I took I 
first I screamed and then I took off wow. running. And I just kept running, kept running, kept running until the, the dog was gone. And I was gone too. Oh. <laughs> and then there was a time, <laughs> there was also a time where a dog bit me on the knee. Um, no way. It yeah. <laughs> it didn't leave scars, but it lightly bit me on the knee. Um, yeah. And it was, that was scary. Both situations were scary. Yet, yeah. if you put a dog in front of me right now, I'm going to get this off face and I want to hold the dog. I want to pet it. I adore dogs. I really love dogs. Now, my mother, <laughs> when she was young, she had dogs in the household. And one of the dogs did chase her. And now, in her older age, when you see her, and you, if you bring like a teacup poodle or a little small dog, she's going to go into that freeze response. And then she runs. Like, I remember a dog came into our apartment, was walking by when we were walking out of the apartment, and my mother ran behind me and grabbed my shirt. And it was just oh. like a dog that can fit in the palm of your hand. But it's a trauma response to her. It's not that she's seeing a dog. So, wow. So explain why you would have this deep... Um, you would have like even dogs bite you and you're still in love with dogs. Because I thought you were going to say, oh, and now I have an issue with dogs. And I was thinking, no, because you and I have gone hiking often and dogs have come up to you. And my mother has dogs and you were fine with that. <laughs> so like, no, so I get it now. It's your mom. So please explain that because I think that explains, that will help people understand so well what yeah. what trauma is and how we respond to trauma and that's the thing with trauma it goes back to that definition of it feeling like things are all over for mm -hmm. my mother that is her body's response to yeah. the dog it triggered something within her that made her feel mm -hmm. like it's all over and yeah and for me I don't know. For me, because I, I have an affinity to dogs already, my body already responds in a loving way to dogs. Because even with the dog yeah. that bit me, I was there because the dog had puppies and I wanted to play with the puppies. And, and so even though I, it bit me on the knee, my body on the inside, it didn't feel like everything was about to end. I didn't yeah. feel like my life was in danger. I didn't feel this deep foreboding when that yeah. happened. My mother, it may have well been that way for her. Yeah. It may have been that she felt like this is the end. This dog is going to, because when I talk with her about it, the way she sees it is like the dog will attack me. It'll hurt me. It'll do these vicious yeah. things to me. And yeah. that's her that's her catastrophe. That's the yeah. end of the road for her. And for me, I'm like, okay, dogs bite. And my body feels like that's it. They bite. Yeah. That's what they do. But they're also cute. 
and they're all yeah. friendly. So I have a different response, mm. different feeling within my yeah. in regards to that. Yeah, and I love that you've just mentioned that because what I hear, like even what you just said, that to your mom, as long as it's a dog, like it doesn't matter that it's a little teacup dog that can fit in the palm of your hand. To her, that is, whoa, this is something that could like really maul me and kill me because what trauma does is it makes everything, what is a small event to one person, like to you, oh my God, it's such a cute little dog. I can play with it. It can fit in the palm of my hand. To her, it is literally like it is. So, and this brings me to another question. So most people just say to other people that are experiencing something like that, they would see your mom shaking. She's looking at this little dog. Well, it's not a big deal. Why is it so hard for people to snap out of trauma? Because we live in a culture where it seems like, snap out of it already, get over it. It's not a big deal. And I always say to people, don't do that with someone who's in a state of who's uh, having a trauma response because that may actually do more damage than good. So what is it? Um, and I see this a lot, right? We do live in a culture where it's like you get over things. Like, yes, I'm having a trauma response and my entire being is shutting down. But then people are like, it's not such a big deal. Get over it. Why is that actually not the appropriate response? And why is it so hard for people to get over um, a trauma in that way? Like we just don't get to get over it. Yes. So that, when it comes to that, and when we think about trauma, it goes back to what I mentioned about Bessel van der Kolk. So he wrote this book yeah. called The Body Keeps Score. It's a fantastic mm. book everyone should read yeah. it everyone should read it because yes. he really truly talks about trauma and how it is an imprint on the body that experience is an imprint on our bodies and mm. our bodies may not remember the story like you you saw how i told you the story about the dog chasing me and you saw that i was calm you didn't see the tension you didn't see any type you saw me laughing about it when, yeah. you, when I talk to my mom about a dog, like if I talk to her and say, mom, I want to have a dog, you can visually see the tension in her face. You can see her eyes start to get bigger and you just visually see her body re react to it. So when it comes to trauma, it's more so that imprint on the body and yes. On, in particular, it is more so about when you're thinking about trauma, you think about that stress response, because when you have that experience with trauma, it triggers the stress response. And so we've heard of the stress response as the fight, well, going from freeze, faint, or fawning, fighting, or flight, and then also when you pretty much, when you're at equilibrium, having that social engagement. So it's more like an experience. If you've ever seen, and I like, when I talk about this, I really like to explain the stress response and to really explain how it happens. So let's take my mom looking at a dog and seeing a yeah. dog. When she first sees it, she initially freezes. 
So that's yeah. his response. And then she goes into the flight. And yeah. then go, when she's away from the dog, she goes into equilibrium. Um, yeah. In that relaxation phase. So that's really talking about our sympathetic our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous systems and the reactions to those different stressors or those different events that happen to us. So I like to talk about going back to Dan Siegel about the, about the brain. And he talks, he has a great video on YouTube about a hand model of the brain. And he really yeah about the archaic part of our brain um, yeah. and he talks about the brain stem and how it really regulates that fight flight or freeze response mm -hmm. is what helps us to breathe is what yeah. helps us regulate our heartbeat all those things to keep us alive so when a mm -hmm. trauma experience when a, a traumatic experience happens your body is reacting to that because it's trying to keep itself alive. It's trying yeah. to survive. And so a lot of times with our brains, I use a hand model because he usually, he literally uses your hand and explains yes. the frontal cortex, the cortex, the limbic system, which houses our memories and the amygdala, which which helps us with the alarm system of knowing something's happening and then, or stressors happening, and then the brainstem, which regulates our heartbeat and so forth. So mm. a lot of times when our brain goes back to that archaic part or goes into that stress response, we literally, everything else goes offline and we, our bodies put all its emphasis on survival. And I know this is neuroscience, <laughs> but... No, but I am loving it. And I know <laughs> that the mighty magicians love this. So keep going. And like, I'm a... we love these kinds of things. We love listening to it. And I'm... <laughs> keep going. We are it. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm really giving a high-level overview. I, I really encourage people to read <laughs> to learn more about the brain and that flipping of the lid because that yes. is what happens whenever we are stressed. I know personally coming for this interview, this is something that triggers a stress response for me. And I will flip, you know, my lid, but I have ways yeah. and we'll talk more about it, about how I'm able to calm my nervous system, how I'm able to build that capacity to to really yes. be in the present moment. And so I hope, I gave a big mm -hmm. open, but I'm hoping that I hit on that question for you. <laughs> no, that, that was really, really awesome. Cause like, I think while, what we're getting from this is everyone is wired differently, yeah. right? What is the big, event um, for me may not be a big event for the person and I always tell the money not to do so who honey is she's my sister how honey and I grew up in the same environment right had the same life experience often but the way that we process certain events like some events will be big things for her and big stresses and be 
trauma things. And I'll be like, really? How is that a trauma? Like, that is just, yeah, by society standards, it's a big event, but it's not to me. And then some things will be big things to me. And she'll be like, I see that is a big thing for you, but it's not to me. You know, yeah. so it's, it's all about also what is it that you can process? So if there's something that is already, um, we all come, I also say like our nervous systems also get, um, I believe that from past lives, we have our own experiences, right? But even in the womb, like my mom always says to me that like when she was pregnant with me, I was always like wanting absolute silence. She couldn't get, she couldn't go out. People didn't even believe she was pregnant, all that. With honey, she was like, she says, I couldn't sit still. I was partying the whole time. You know, I get overwhelmed if I get, if I have too many things all at once, right? So even from the time we are born, you can already see before we're even born, we can already gauge what it is that our nervous systems, our parents can gauge what our nervous systems can handle and can't handle because the child is already showing who they are from within the womb. So I'm a big believer in that. And people are just different, you know? Yeah. And we and, inherit different things. And that is so true. And what you're talking about a lot is, a lot of that is epigenetics, what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and what you're yeah. also talking about, going back to what I was saying, even like you were saying that your mother, when she was pregnant with you, what a lot of people don't realize is that there's different when our parents when our mothers are carrying us in their wombs they go through different stresses yeah. too. and when i talk mm. about the brain and about the limbic system and those different portions of the brain they release hormones they release different adrenaline they release um, glucocorticoid um, steroids, they release different types of hormones that, that can also impact the baby. And so while you're forming in your, and if she's going through a stressor and she's releasing that hormone, it's also impacting you. And that can impact your DNA. And that can impact the way that you respond to different traumas and then thinking about it when she was in her mother's room that same thing, mm. thing if that your grandmother was experiencing that then she is now being impacted with that and so that is how that intergenerational when we talk about intergenerational trauma that's how it can be passed by DNA. That's how it can be passed through the bloodline. And this is something that researchers, there's a lot of research behind it, um, but a lot of researchers are doing, are learning more and more about epigenetics. And it really made me think about mm. research. One other thing that was so, it because I told you, I love research, I get excited. Um, <laughs> but no, go for it. I'm loving this interview so much, Laurie. I think you're going to get so many people sending you questions and things, which is 
just perfect. Um, sorry, just to interrupt, I'm going to switch off my video just so that I can charge my phone as we talk. I'll switch it back on once it's a little bit more charged, but keep going. Please keep going. My favorite topic is epigenetics. So I am in my zone right now. Please continue. So there is, there is a book that I'm reading right now that talks so much about intergenerational trauma. It talks, it hits on racial trauma. Um, it's by author Rezma Minikim. I mentioned him to you, Van, um, recently. And in that yes, book- Yes, you have. Yes. And I've been following him on Instagram. Yes, he is a therapist and he, he is a trauma expert and he has a lot of um, knowledge in the field of trauma and working with couples um, and in social justice. And his book is My Grandmother's Hands. That's the first three words of the title. It's a long title, but it's pretty much talking about how to heal from racial trauma. And in this book, he talks about a particular um, study where they had, um, they did a study with mice. Mm. And with the mice, what they, they paired the mice um, and they had, the, had it where whenever the mice would go towards, I think it was a water source or some type of source, they had yeah. the smell of cherries, like this chemical that smelled like cherries. And every time- Cherry blossoms. Go, what was that? <laughs> Cherry blossoms. I reference. It's funny that you're using the study because it's my favorite study that I often reference in um, whenever I discuss epigenetics as well. But keep yes. going. Yes. I love it. It's also mentioned in the um, uh, Wealthy Money blog. So if you guys just go in, you type in cherry blossoms and search in the Wealthy Money blog, you'll find the study. But yeah. Yes, so he's, so that, yes, this is a really cool study. Yeah. It's, they would smell the cherry smell, the cherry blossom smell, and yeah. they would get shocked. So they took the yeah. water away and would only smell the cherry blossom, and they would start to have that reaction every time they mm. smell cherry blossoms. So those mice procreated, had more mice, and their next generation of mice, every time you would put in the scent of cherries, the mice would have like this, this reaction to mm -hmm. it, just the smell of cherries. There's nothing shocking them, just they would yeah. have that reaction. And it even went down to the grandchildren, that if the grandchildren or grand mice, the next generation <laughs> of mice, that when they yeah. would smell the cherries, they would have this visceral reaction. And, yeah. and this study in itself shows how epigenetics work. It shows how certain things and certain responses can be, can be passed on to different generations. And they haven't mm -hmm. done it in humans because of course that would be an ethical issue. Um, yeah. And it would take a long time to, even if they did do it, it would take a long time to wait for, for the results of that and to really go follow through with that. But really 
looking at that study and how the mice responded and how they're the next generation responded and the next generation, it shows that there's some evidence, there's some theory, there's some proof that mm. things are passed down from generation to generation. Our reaction mm. passed down to different traumatic experience, experiences from generation to generation. Yeah, but I think most women that are listening to this that have given birth, when I listen to their stories on children and who they were during the pregnancy and who their children are now can resonate with that. You know, it's like there is a kind of resonance to that, which then brings me to us talking because, wow, this is so interesting. So we've just discussed intergenerational trauma, but I'm also very, very fascinated in Given your understanding of trauma, how do you think racial trauma affects Black people? Because as you're talking, Laurie, I'll tell you what's coming up in my head. I'm thinking, so imagine 400 years ago, be it wherever in the world when Black people were experiencing hectic racial oppression, which is on a global plane mainly, but I'm just thinking a country like the U.S., where now you people, women are uh, giving birth under in a time of slavery, and you've just told us about this, where like they have to work insanely long hours, high adrenaline, etc., and then kids are born into this, and then their kids give birth to their kids, and then their kids give birth to their kids, and then people say, but. What are you talking about? Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Racial trauma is the real thing because you've just told us how being in the womb, there's all these things that are happening and your environment is affecting your body. And then you give birth to this child and that environment affects that body. And then they give birth and so on and so on. So how might racial trauma look like and play out in black bodies? Huh. That is a very, very loaded question. <laughs> and and I, I say that it's loaded because there are entire books devoted to these, this, just this one topic. There's so yeah. many that talk about racial trauma and it's, it's, it's a question of where do you begin to even talk about it? Where do you mm -hmm. start with that? Because we talked about the epigenetics and what you just mentioned about slavery and, and enslaved people, because that was, that's my ancestry, is that yeah. my, my great, great, great grandmothers and grandfather on both sides were enslaved people. And, yeah. and it's just funny talking about this because, and we can talk more in detail about this, is that I've been doing ancestry work for myself, researching mm. my ancestors and learning about who they are, what their names are, their siblings, mm. where they lived and how they may have lived because is helping me to understand who I am and 
how I may have, um, how I respond and how I move and so forth. And mm -hmm. so when I think about, um, when I think about racial trauma, it's so, it's so many ways to really come at it. We can talk about my grandmother and my great grandmother and how they experienced trauma and how they experienced, you know, the Jim Crow and the black codes, like my great grandfather, I'll tell you, it, it really made me think of a story that, of, that I was talking to my mother about last night, just my grandfather. Yeah. Black man. And in the 40s, he was living, he had about five children, and he was about 40 years old. Yeah. He, during that time was World War II, and he owned his own land. He had his own land, and he was a farmer, and he worked. Wow. And there was a time where there was a white man who wanted him to share crops. Sheriff wow. to me was like that post, it was slavery because yes. a lot of times with sharecropping, they would have you to work and then you would bring, you would have to pay off, you would have to bring the cotton and then they wouldn't weigh the cotton properly. They would say that you still owe or that you barely broke even to pay them back for all the farm equipment that you borrowed. So it really was a way to economically keep you enslaved. Mm. And father knew that and he refused to do that. And because he refused to do that, this he wasn't supposed to go into, because he had filled out his draft card, he wasn't supposed to be put into the military or go off to World War II because he had five children and because of his age. That white man found a way to get him ensnared into and get him where he had to go off to World War II. Wow. And so he had to serve and he wasn't supposed to serve. And so this in itself, hearing these stories, this is a part of what racial trauma is. It, it, racial trauma, not only for me, it doesn't only impact your nervous system, it impacts your life. And yeah. when you're seeing, and I can just imagine my grandmother watching this and, and my mother as a little girl watching this and, and understanding that if you don't follow what the white man tells you to do, if you don't give your all, if you don't lay down and just be subservient to them, this you can be put in a place where you can be killed. So this is a type of, this is what, for my mother, she suffered vicarious trauma because she saw the trauma of my grandmother losing her husband to the having her husband go off to war and leaving her alone with children. She saw that trauma. And then she also saw the trauma of my, my grandfather going to war and coming back and being affected because of what he saw in the war. And this is all compounded and this all ties into that racial trauma. It's, it's something that my mother saw and now it's compounded. And now my mother starts to move in a different way. Because as a mm. child, 
she's processing it a different way and yeah. she's seeing it in a different light. And so yeah. now she sees white people as a particular, and, and following that, that white body supremacy, she sees that as something that is a detriment to her life, to her yeah. family's life, yeah. to her way of being. Yeah. And and that's even thinking about Emmett Till, thinking about what's happening right now in regards to Breonna Taylor. Mm. This week we were told that <laughs> the police officers were charged because of the bullets that missed Breonna Taylor. It, yeah. I mean and wow. And when I'm I, like, I still am processing that mess because you and I have been talking about it offline, but it still doesn't land. It still doesn't make sense. It ties into that sense of powerlessness. Yeah. It goes back. It ties so well to that story about my grandfather because my grandfather Talking about the stress response, you can, when they talk about stress response, they talk about it as a curvature. So it's more like you have, you're in safety, you go up to fight or flight. And if you're in yeah. imminent danger where you feel like you have nowhere to go, you go into freeze. You come yes. down from, you go into fight or flight because you feel like you can affect something. And then once you feel like you're into safety, you're back into that openness, that mindfulness, that social engagement. So thinking mm -hmm. about my grandfather, he was in that fight or flight. He's like, whatever the white men say, I'm, I know my rights. This is my power. I am not going to share crop because you're not going to enslave me. And when yeah. he did that and stood up, they poured more onto him. And then it yeah. moved him to that place of freeze because he had to comply and it was yeah. a, so when you look at my mother she sees that and that's passed down to her and so she yeah. may freeze in in response to a lot of things and i see yeah. in my today yeah. that i freeze when yeah. a lot of things happen i freeze i start to close up, I may not voice myself, is I feel like I don't have power. Because when you're in freeze, yeah. you're in that shame, you're in shutdown, you feel hopeless, you feel powerlessness. And so when you mm -hmm. see what happened with Brianna, you see yeah. how we went into that fight or flight as a collective. And we were <laughs> fighting and protesting and saying, give her charge to cops that killed her. We're in that fight or flight. And yeah. then they take away our powerless, our power, saying no, yeah. we're not in charge. Some of us are in that freeze because we feel hopeless. Yeah, and it's possible, one of the things that I wanna also touch on is that with racial trauma, it's possible that as a collective, we never go beyond the freeze. So we never get to the point of relaxation and just yeah. being still. So we are constantly living for centuries, that's what's passed on to us, right, generationally, where we are constantly on. We are constantly on edge. And mm -hmm. it's something that I've noticed about myself as well. You know, it's like 
My nervous system was constantly on edge and it became my mission to figure out and still is. I still go into that like, how do I get into relaxation? Getting into a space of relaxation is so difficult, which is also why I think that for black people and in particular black women, when you tell us ease, relax, do nothing for the day, it's almost like you could be killing us because it's like, know that you're asking the nervous system to go into a relaxed state when it's not natural for it. For mm -hmm. centuries, it's been on alert. So now this is part of the issue. But you and I both know about this and we talk about this a lot about how that then leads to a lot of health complications. And we're not even aware that a lot of our physical health issues are stemming from our always on edge nervous systems. So can you please tell us about a little about that? Because I know you've been doing quite a bit of research on this particular topic. Yes, when you talked about that, Van, especially the health part of it, <laughs> it really makes me think of the term that comes to mind is that allostatic load. It's the best way that mm. I can explain it is that is what exactly what you just said is that constant feeling when I talked about the flipping of the lid for a lot of us we're yeah. always fluttering we're always fluttering so when I talked about oh the God. flipping of the lid our prefrontal cortex it deals with our ability to rationalize to really think about things, emotion, and, and so forth, and to really use our executive functioning, our planning, being able to really, um, it, it's our planning, our organizing, being able to have impulse control, all of those different things. And our cortex is the emotional part of our brain. So if we're in our stress response, those things go offline. And it's more so of the brainstem and the limbic system that is working to try to keep us alive, to regulate our heart rate, to produce all those different hormones so that we can run or do whatever we need to do to keep ourselves alive. So you freeze mm. because you're keeping yourself alive because you've now learned, your body has now learned that if you are to push against that system, then now then you're going, there's danger. Yes. Things are not going to happen the way that you would hope. You're not going to move to that safety. So you're stuck in freeze. So for a lot of us mm -hmm. as black women, having that fluttering and having that constant production of all those hormones, it wreaks havoc on our hearts, high blood yeah. pressure. It wreaks oh, havoc. Wow on our kidneys, it wreaks havoc on our entire body. And so you see the high blood pressure, you see the diabetes, you see the asthma, because all of that is related to that in constantly being in that stress response. There's a lot of studies on that in regards to um, the ACEs and ad adverse childhood experiences and how different and how they really did a longitudinal study on children who were and this goes back to that compounding of trauma about children who yeah. who had adverse childhood experiences maybe 
there was divorce or maybe they, and this is a trigger alert, maybe they were molested. They went through different types of traumas in their childhood. And, and when you think about that and then also think about the compounding of racial trauma and then that epigenetics, the intergenerational trauma, and then just other everyday traumas that we deal with, that compounding, it's a constant flipping. And yeah. in order to really bring your brain back online, to be able to really bring yourself back to that relaxation, you need to feel like your body needs to feel like it's in a place of safety. And when you're living in an area, like I'm living, I'm explaining my experience now, when you're living yeah. in a system where it is designed to bring you down and it's constant microaggressions and it's constant things that you're trying to overcome. Yeah. <laughs> it goes against that safety, right? It just, it goes like, and I think this is what is, what, what is so key to understand. And again, this is something that I'm so passionate about, which is that you are, we're healing but then we're staying in the same environments that are the triggers, mm -hmm. you know? So we're healing, but then you go out and instantly you are back in the space of unsafety. You are healing at home, you've done the healing work, you step out, microaggression, 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 and it's like, whoa. The nervous system completely goes back into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So now, how do you heal in such spaces? And that's the tricky part of it. And I know that there's been a lot of, I know that when, I, when it comes to myself personally, the way that I heal from it, I think about, let me go back. I think about those who may have suffered DV. A lot of times we tell them to move out of that situation so that they can be able to relax and heal. The way that I try do my best to heal is by unplugging myself. So I unplug from the world. I may take, mm. I currently am taking a break from social media because it's so overwhelming. I stop looking yeah. at news and I do things that, calm my body so that I can increase that capacity to cope and to move forth in yeah. the world. So in that, when I go back into that safety, the way into that relaxation, the way that I do it, like right now, I talked about this being, this could be a nervous thing for me just doing speaking right now yeah. beside me, I have a diffuser with lavender so that, my body senses that, my body feels that. I do deep breathing because it slows down my heart rate. I do yeah. meditation. Um, and honestly, I, I know that there in the book um, that I talked about by Resma Minikin, he's a somatic experiencing practitioner. So he does a yeah. lot of work with the body in therapy. And one yeah. of the things that he recommended that really resonated with me is about visualizing your ancestors and communing with them mm. and taking that part to sit back. And I know for me, that has been healing 
being yes. able to, because when I'm doing the ancestry work, I can imagine myself having these, com these conversations with my great, great grandparents and understanding yes. them and having that connection with them. Mm. For me, I feel safe when I am yeah. with ancestors I we do a lot of that in the money magic course as well and it's so therapeutic so healing i think it is absolutely necessary but then like oh gosh do i even want to go down this crazy path but let me just say it because you know but people then like and i feel like here's where racial trauma also becomes uh nightmare on the on I think on the black mind because what we were then taught just the mention of ancestral trauma and healing ancestral trauma and ancestors tends to send people into a spin and yet like you really need like how we've been just how you've just said just being able to commune with your ancestors, to see them, to visualize them, to call them into the space and to heal with them is integral to healing us in this lifetime. But then you've got a whole system that has been teaching us that that is evil. You should only call on religion. You should never mention your ancestors. But how do you heal from that space when like your traumas are not just yours, you know? And you know, Van, I'm going to answer this not so much as a therapist, but more so on a personal level. Yeah. Um, because what you talk about is the way that I was brought up. I know earlier I mentioned that yeah. I was brought up in Christianity. And in particular, yeah. I was brought up Pentecostal. And so... Yeah. The belief was the only ghost is the Holy Ghost. <laughs> oh my God! The Holy Spirit is the Holy, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, and and it was taught that you are not to connect with that. That's that that's divination. That's mm -hmm. not biblical. And and I'm not going to go down the road of the philosophical and and just really talking about different scriptures in regards to that more or less my response to that was more so of just really i had to take a journey for myself and i had to do a lot of self-education mm -hmm. i had to sit back and and mm -hmm. this is this is what I say, this is why I say that a lot of times we have to pull away and we have to pull back. I had to move away from the church for a moment and I had to look within myself and yeah. I had my own investigation, my own research to understand what resonates for me, what yeah. is my journey, what is mm -hmm. for me, what is reality for me. And so in my own personal journey, by stepping back and educating myself and doing, for me, research is paramount and it's big. And I researched things and I learned about church history. I learned about a lot of things and how 
religion came to the continent of Africa and how it was for my ancestors, how they were indoctrinated. And I made the choice that I step away from the church and the dogma and the doctrines of it. And I just, I really connect with what is true for me. And if I was to talk to other people about this, I wouldn't say what's right or wrong. I would say what is right for you. Because as mm. a, this is me moving back into the therapist realm, as yes. a therapist, I see people, even though I have been trained in this, I also have a coaching lens because I see yes. people as the experts of their own lives. That's one thing yes. that I love about my old, one of my previous positions is that we constantly said that we coach and we're that are the people we work with are experts of their own lives and we partner with them because we want them to build their skills and build their journey. We're just that support. We're just there. And that's to support and to help them really think things through and figure out their lives. That's how I see myself. And that's how I see others. I feel that everyone is the expert of their own lives. Everyone is able, have the capacity to figure out what is the best thing for themselves. That is how you reclaim your power. Mm. That is mm. That's powerful. Is by that is so powerful. You're the expert of your life and that's your power. And that yes. in itself is healing. Wow. Wow. Laurie, I'm so glad that you said that. Hey, so guys, I mean, like I have nothing more to add on that. My whole thing is I've always believed that sister beliefs can coexist. There's no reason why, um, someone like why believing in ancestors and i feel like this is one of those things i don't even need to believe in them like these were people that lived and passed on there's no need to believe it's a fact they lived they passed on and now science is proving that i carry some of the issues in my system i want to heal myself i want to get rid of their issues if there's a way that i could commune with them and figure out how to heal these things, sign me up. So that's always been my theory. It doesn't mean that I am less um, of a believer. I mean, obviously I've never been uh, religious, but it doesn't mean that that somehow negates my belief system. At least that's how I think. But yeah, I understand though, because it's a big thing. People come to me and they say, really want to heal this, but I don't believe in ancestors. And I'm like, this is not an issue of belief. Like, did your great grandmother live? Is she gone? She's an ancestor. This is not, this is not about belief. Yeah. So very, very interesting. And that's it. What you just said, when you said that it made me think of some months ago, no, a year ago, I had a dream about my maternal grandmother and mm. sat with me and she let me know how proud she is of me. Mm. Now my grandma That's beautiful. She's deceased. Yes. <laughs> she's deceased. And we can go through the semantics of if that's demonic or whatever you want to believe. But for me, that was healing because yeah. I was 
point in my life where I felt like, am I doing things right? Am I, am I going the right direction? And she mm. came know that she was proud of me. And a lot of times we get, when we get into ourselves and we're unsure, we get into, I call it an anxiety tornado. It's like that tornado of being overwhelmed and you, you just, you're very unsure. So to have yeah. someone external of yourself, someone that you felt safe with. My grandmother, I felt safe with her. When I was young, I would hold her hand and she would just talk with me and she would keep me at ease and she would tell me how beautiful I was. My hair was beautiful. Everything, how much she loved me. She would tell me she loved me a whole bushel full. That's how much she loved me. And so when you know, when you, that's safety. That's, that's what keeps my lid back on. That's what brings me from the stress response is thinking about her. And so having her in a dream telling me she's proud of me, that's healing me. That's bring me, bringing me yes. back to safety. And that's what's important yes. when it comes to dealing with trauma is being able to come back to that place of safety yes. so that I can engage now. Now I can use mm -hmm. the full portion of my brain. I can really reason. I can organize. I can do everything because now I feel like I'm safe and I'm safe mm. when I'm with my ancestors, when I'm with my grandmother, when she's communing with me. So it, for me, I don't care what anyone else thinks about it. <laughs> personal, for me, it's healing. And that's what matters. Wow. It's all about what I'm hearing is why in this world where, especially for us as black people, where we don't really get to feel safe. What mm -hmm. is the thing that makes you feel safe? Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's not, um, it's not for no reason that one of the first things that they did when they um, colonized the African continent and when they took people from the continent was that they robbed us of our very religion because it's one of those things and not even religion i don't want to call it religion because ancestors is not religion but our spiritual beliefs and our connection to our past because that brought us some level of comfort so that continued so Without, and the work on trauma was nowhere near advanced at that point, but without even realizing it, they were taking away our sense of safety. Some like places that we could go to with people that looked like us, where we could go for answers and talk to them and feel heard and everything. So that in itself added to the trauma, I believe, you know? So there's, and I see um, what's going on a lot, especially with um, therapists of color in the US. There's a lot of returning to ancestral work and integrating it into therapy. And I think a huge part of that is for this very reason is that, well, we need to find a, a places and people where we feel that make us feel safe and our ancestors make us feel safe. So why not put them in the work? Why not integrate it into this body of work? So it's very, very powerful what you've said, Laurie. Thank you so much. Yeah. Wow, guys, like, look at this. this uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this because I'm like, wow, powerful. So, Laurie, 
My next question is actually a very interesting one, right? So I was talking to a friend of mine, another black psychologist, right? And a while back, and we're talking about how black women often take on the martyr archetype and how even in this generation, we feel like we need to save other people or mother other people. And one of the things that I remember you and I once talked about was this concept of the mammy or the helper archetype, right? So I've been thinking a lot about this as to why is it like we often find ourselves in that mode. And actually how this conversation came up with a friend was that I was like, some I can't watch some series and some movies because I feel like even black women that are in high profile positions are still doing the helper archetype in those series. And I'm just like, why are you saving everyone? Why aren't you going, living your best life, taking your money, just chilling, taking your kids? Why is it that we need to help everybody? So I'm very fascinated with how trauma interacts with archetypes. How can, how do you think uh, based on your understanding of trauma, trauma creates a collective archetype or contributes to a collective archetype that a people adopt? Hmm. So I remember this conversation that we had and yeah, when I think about it, what really comes up is just my own personal experience um, or Mm. my ancestors experience with that. Um, And one thing I think about is just really revisiting because I like, if you notice something about the way I present things, I like to start in the where it began and then work my way down. And thinking about just in the Americas where it began. And for my ancestors, doing that research and learning about how some of my ancestors were possibly the mammies to different um, white children. And how my ancestors were there to serve. Some served in the house, some were in the fields they were always there to serve white white bodies black bodies were there to serve white bodies and capitalism um and just helping them with taking care of their children all of all of that and just really thinking about how how with my ancestors and just thinking about how with Black men, a lot of times they were made an example of. If they were to run away or do anything, the Black woman would see the Black man being whipped, being tortured. And so that seeing that trauma, again, it goes back to that vicarious trauma where you witness someone else's trauma and you have a traumatic experience from that, you start to have that stress response, is the pain, the hurt is imprinted upon your body. That's that vicarious trauma. And so for Black women, seeing that is 
when you have those experiences, your body is now thinking, how can I move so that this does not happen again? So for mm-hmm. us, we feel like, okay, how can we move to protect our Black sons? How may we move to protect our Black men? So now we're trying uh-huh. to protect them and save them and keep them under wraps. And so that's that response. How can I protect? Because again, we're trying to survive and we want our children to survive. We want our black men to survive. And we're trying to figure out, it may, a lot of times we see it as being overprotective, but when you had centuries of this beating down on black people, you want to figure out a way, how can I move so that I am not beaten down? How am I going to move so I can support my people? And so when it comes to that archetype, it's like, it's not only that we're in that response of, we're in that place of having to, to serve others and we're in that, that fawning, that being really helpful and just being very, what we call humbleness, but it's really that fawning and just being like submissive, okay, whatever you want, whatever you want, as long as you don't kill me, as long as you don't hurt my child, as long as you don't hurt my children, that's where that comes from. That's literally, it's so interesting that you talk about that because I was trying to explain to my siblings on that, on an event that happened and I was like, wow, I'm looking at this black woman responding to what's happening in America. And I'm like, no, this is a fawning response. This is a trauma response. And they were like, no, why are you making excuses for her? And I was like, I literally am not. I'm seeing a trauma response that is ingrained within us that if I follow the rules, if I make them feel happy, then it will be, uh, then I can save others or I can save myself. It's a survival response. How did so, I survive? wow. Yeah. I've never even looked at it this way about what you're saying about the helper archetype. This is so fascinating. And take and that. And this just, wow, this blows my yeah. mind. And then take that and then bring it over to the code switching. Bring it over to how <laughs> we, there's a, um, there's an organization in Montreal called Coco, and they have a video about a, a woman of color, a black woman entering into a nonprofit and, and the experience, the journey for her. And mm-hmm. it really talks about how the black woman will see things and will try to improve and how different microaggressions, you have to understand when you're in that, trauma response and you're you're in that stress response and you're flipping of the lid when you start to think you're safe and people are saying yes and they're and you feel a little safe and you're like okay your body is starting to think i can bring up bring my lid back on i can start to relax microaggression mm-hmm. you're already hypersensitive mm-hmm. because you already mm-hmm recognize and and when you when you've been through the trauma response your brain is now wired where it recognizes when there's hints of danger your amygdala is it it alarms because it'll see okay 
oh, they start to say this about me. Oh, they're looking at me a certain way. Oh, they're not smiling at me. They're giving me that half smile. They're acting mm -hmm. this way. All these little microaggressions and it causes you to flip your lid and it causes mm -hmm. you to stay in that response. And, and so yeah. when you see that, so that response is the freeze response or fawning. So when you see that if you are a black woman and you start to push and you start to move forward and then you see that microaggression, that pushback, you go back to fawning. Oh, let me stop that. Yes. And you're so right. So yeah. guys, let's just quickly unpack in five seconds what fawning is. The fawning response is a people pleasing response. You know, like that you are the agreeable one. So most times, um, instead, if when we are in aggressive situations or even with our abusers, you may see, and you see this a lot with domestic violence um, survivors, like the women will be, they wait on the abuser and then you try to please them at every turn in order to make him feel okay, him or her. I mean, anyone can be the abuser, but traditionally, um, often, I don't want to say traditionally, but often it is men's stats show. So then most domestic violence survivors are always on edge trying to please the abuser. And then you are doing everything to make him happy so that he doesn't snap. Children do this as well with very abusive parents. This uh, fawning is my natural, I know it doesn't seem like that, but it is my natural response having grown up in an abusive household. So it's a response that I have researched in depth because it's a response that I have had to learn how to quickly curtail when I get into fawning because fawning is how I survived for my entire childhood and my teen years. And for most of us, and sometimes it's not just in the household, if you were bullied at high school, you learned how to be, you may have learned to fawn for the bullies and please them so that they don't bully you, they bully the next person. It's wild, right? So. For us, when it comes to racial trauma, you see a lot of um, people of color who will be like, okay, this is a highly traumatic situation, but I'm just going to toe the line and do as told. And beyond that, I'm going to go over and above that and be the helper. And even how we are shown as the helpers in movies, like you are the best friend, the black best friend who is helping the white friend get a man or get the girl. And that is your role, you know, because somehow that is how we have been perceived that the good black character is that. And not understanding that that is often our trauma response. It is normal to be enraged at oppression. It is completely normal. <laughs> so it's okay like it's normal to be enraged when we are abused to be upset you know yeah. so but most of us then go into this I don't want to rock the boat and so now this has become a collective archetype which is and so I, interesting because I never saw that as a trauma response and I really wanted to tie into what you just said Van about it being the words you said it being natural because the thing about that helper archetype on the other side is the angry black woman. 
and mentioned about being angry. And what it is, is that this is normal. Like you said, it is natural to be angry. It took me a long time to get there because if anyone knows me, I have this, people tell me I exude this energy of calmness and they Mm -hmm. can never get angry. I had to really do some work on that because I had to give myself permission to be angry and to Mm -hmm. allow myself to move in that. When you do some, when you do research on, on the stress response and on trauma, and you look at Steve Porges and Peter Levine, when they talk about polyvagal theory, I know these are a lot of theories, but the, the thing that I'm talking about is more so of that stress response and moving through it. Some people yes. see it as a curve, some people see it as a ladder. And that ladder, yeah. if you visualize a ladder at the bottom is the freeze fawning response, in the middle yeah. is the fight or flight, and at the top is safety. If you yes. want safety, you have to go through your fight or flight. And that's something sure. I had to learn. And some, I had an experience recently where I would always freeze. I would always please. I would always fawn. And yes. I just went into that fight response. And I said, I'm not going to do yes. this this is not who I am. I don't have to mm-hmm. take this. And I was able to move into that. Sure. And so wow. that's the thing for Black women. It's okay to be angry because it's a response. People yes. think that's why trauma, knowing what the word trauma actually means is so important. Because again, going back mm. to what we talked about at the very beginning, Trauma is an individual yeah. experience and it is complex, is complex and is compounded. And so for black women, mm-hmm. the complexity is the compoundedness of it. And mm-hmm. so have been yes. that freeze response and being that helper because of all of the different traumas that we talked about. We didn't hit on the D. Experience. We don't hit. We didn't hit on a lot of things that that we experience yeah. in our different individual journeys. And so, in order for us yeah. to get from that get to safety, we have to go through that fight. So, if you're angry and you start to show that it's okay, have compassion yes. for yourself. Even if you're in a freeze response, one thing I wanted to say is have compassion for yourself because that. In that freeze response and that fawning can come a lot of shame, a lot of shame for not voicing yourself, for not being able to say what you have to say. Compassion for yourself because you can move through it. You can push through that response and be able to get to safety. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. So Laurie, what you've just unpacked is something so powerful. Because this brings me into one of, you know, my hot buttons. <laughs> People being in a deep state of trauma and then being told to go straight into gratitude. Guys, that's yeah. when you can just shoot me dead. You know? And I meet so many people, especially black women, that are like, I can't seem to get past and manifest or live the life that I want. I'm in, I'm doing the gratitude. I'm being happy. 
And I'm like, but have you felt the anger? No, that's negative emotion. Have you felt the shame? Have you felt all the anxiety? Have you gone into the fear? We cannot get into the state of the safety and feeling grateful if we are not allowing ourselves to go through all these other emotions. Mm -hmm. So I just want us to just unpack in um, your view as a therapist about this need that we have um, of people that are in a state of trauma. Like we've just talked about racial trauma and we're not even talking about what patriarchy does to the female body and living on edge with fears of being violated, going to parties where you can't relax. And these things may seem small, but they are not small to our nervous systems. And now you're just being asked to bypass all that and go straight into a space of gratitude. Why is that not helpful? Is you pretty much answered it, man. <laughs> to be honest. It's not helpful because you're not- I understand the gratitude movement. I'm sorry. You're, you, you really answered it. You're not allowing yourself to go through all those phases. You're not allowing yourself to yeah. be, you're not allowing yourself to be true and honest to yourself because you're faking and you're compounding yes. those things. And what, you, what we have to understand is that when, it, when certain things are in our bodies, like that anger, and it doesn't go away, even though if we- mm. Amen. It stays in our bodies. And so even if you do not physically say it or it's not showing on your face, it's gonna show in your body. It's going to show up mm. as, as heart, you know, a heart attack, or it may show up as some type of medical issue because that stress is still mm. there, that trauma is still there. And in order to really heal, you have to allow yourself to go through and to process those things and to just really yeah. honor all parts of yourself. That's... That's yeah. something even, I mean, as a therapist, I knew, but I know, Van, that's something that you and I talked about in the beginning of our friendship is being able yes. to honor yourself, to honor your feelings, yes. to be honest yes. with yourself, to be true to yourself, because it's really yeah. about you. And, and what's hard about that, what's really hard about that with the gratitude and, and, what it really makes me think about is as helpers, we have to be really careful with that. Mm -hmm. We have to be really careful about how we tell people how to live their lives. Thank because you. To that expert of your own life. There's a yeah. lot of helpers that don't recognize, a lot. they don't understand the power dynamics that's in that, in that yeah. relationship. When you have yeah. a client and you're a coach or a therapist, mm. the client or the person coming to you sees you in a place of power because they see you as an expert. They lean yeah. on you. To, they trust you. And so if mm -hmm. you're telling them you should have this gratitude, that's that level of shaming. And that person... That is. I feel that, right? Like, I feel... 
especially because, well, everyone knows that I am so far from being like the happy gratitude, I'm going to pretend things are not happening person. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I barely held myself together during everything this last week. I had to make a conscious decision not to talk about racial trauma because I was like, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm literally tired. So I'm just going to take time to rest. But the truth is, what I keep hearing, especially in the coaching space, is it's impossible to feel fear and gratitude at the same time. If you allow yourself to be grateful, you can't feel fear. I'm like, what nonsense is that? I can feel like 10 different emotions at once. I mean, has anyone ever met someone who's like, oh my God, I'm so excited I got into grad school. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy about this. Oh, but oh my God, I'll have to leave my boyfriend. You are grateful and happy and sad all at once. It is possible to be all these emotions, but what is being done most times is with this whole like, be grateful because then you don't feel the fear, you don't feel the sadness is A, saying that humans are singular in their emotional experience and that there's a linear way to experience emotions. There isn't. Humans are complex. It is possible to feel 10 emotions at once. And it is possible to be happy and grateful about something and still sad and grieving about the very thing. I can be happy and grateful that, oh my God, I've achieved a dream that my grandmother always wanted but super sad that she's not here to see it. I can have all those things all at once. So this assumption and forcing people not to feel their fear, not to voice it, not to, and that's the thing that annoys me, not to even voice it because, oh my God, then I'll bring more fear and more worry into my life. The worry and the fear is already there. Can we just get over this and just feel it and acknowledge it? And so, yeah, what you're saying is so true. Emotions are complex, and we have mm-hmm. a, I see it as a circle we have in psychology, like, and I've seen in coaching and other um, areas where they talk about the feelings wheel. And yeah. we have this whole cycle of different feelings, and we can be, we can straddle different ones at the same time. Yes. And honestly, when it comes to coaches, Understanding that dynamic, mm-hmm. understanding the dynamic that you have, this is really, this plays into what we talked about, about trauma, all of that, because you can be seen as a place of authority and you have that privilege. Being a coach can be a privilege. Being a helper can be a privilege because you're seen as that expert. And so being aware of that privilege and, and I invite a lot of coaches and helpers to really try this on and to really think about it and to really examine it. Even when you're working with clients, when you're working with people, think about the different dynamics that are there. Thinking, think about the places where people may be stuck because sometimes it could be that dynamic of that person feeling shame and afraid to voice And yes, that's work that they have to do. Then also there's the work of you evaluating your own privileges, evaluating what you bring to the table as well and what power dynamic you bring. Because sometimes we are acting, one thing about trauma and one thing 
about this whole experience is that sometimes we can take on the behaviors of our oppressors. And Ooh. if you're a coach and you're a person who has not really evaluated that and worked through your own traumas, those things can play out in the way that you interact with your clients. And, and it's really, that's why I feel when it comes to trauma, everyone should be trauma informed. And when I say trauma informed, not just taking a one and done workshop, I mean, really, truly understanding the essence of trauma, how it works, because yes. sometimes, because you can be playing out a power dynamic and you can yeah. further injure another person because you have not yeah. worked own stuff and you have not gotten the yeah what you've just said Laurie all that that is like I think that's what makes trauma for me so complex is that you can be working on healing trauma and you and I have had this conversation where we're like yeah we've seen practitioners that are trauma informed but when you listen to them and when you hear them out, it's almost like, whoa, that feels like a re-traumatization. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa. So it's that understanding of how trauma impacts the body and how trauma impacts humans. And I think a huge part of that, I think because trauma is so layered, is to be working through our own trauma, either as the, and also I think that Working with trauma, and I'm going to say this because I truly have seen it over and over again. If someone's going to work with trauma, especially in terms of the power dynamic, and let's say you have a white coach and a black uh, client, if someone is not trauma, is not racially informed and hasn't done their racial trauma work and unpacked it, without even intending to, it may lead to a re-traumatization. So it is such a delicate topic. And mm -hmm. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. And it doesn't just work with just race, guys. It's with so many different elements. It's just even simple. Like you like believing that my way is the right way. My way is the only way. And then forcing someone, a belief system on someone else. It can be so intense, you know, and it can cause a lot of trauma because trauma, again, is such a subtle thing. We don't even understand what can easily traumatize another human or what can trigger them. It's true. And with that, I really, this is why I really, and I know I talked about this man so many times. I think I have a crush, <laughs> maybe I don't know. But the book by Resma Menachem, My Grandmother's Hand, it, I, I feel like he got so much in that book. And it just really breaks down. He really talks about what trauma is. He talks about white bodies. He talks about black bodies and police bodies and about white body supremacy. And what you just said, the reason why I'm saying this is because what you just said, when you talked about the white coach and the black client, yeah. white bodies have been traumatized too. There's a history of yes. that. And yes. that's why I said that those behaviors of the oppressor, because white, 
bodies have traumatized other white bodies. And so those mm -hmm. white bodies can carry out that same behavior mm -hmm. to traumatize mm -hmm. black bodies and brown bodies and, and other mm -hmm. white bodies. And that's, that's what we really need to understand is you have to understand the history. You have to understand where it comes from so that you can understand mm -hmm. how to move forward and heal. And he talks yeah. about how to heal. He talks about different things you can do with your body to really bring your, yourself to a calm and a safe space. Some of the things that I've talked about with the ancestors, some of those things he also talks about. He mm. talks about communal healing. It's a lot of that. And so if I was to recommend anything is to read that book. And then also if, talking through the having these conversations if this is starting to bring up things first off be compassionate with yourself and then mm -hmm. also consider finding a therapist that is trauma-informed that has mm -hmm. a particular body of work that they utilize in regards to helping people with trauma yeah so my next question is how do you know if a therapist is trauma because uh, we've just spoken about trauma informed doesn't mean that like you know how to hold space for trauma um so how do you know that this is a therapist that's for you and i talked i've had an experience two experiences with um two coaches where i started to have to be very when early on when i was using coaches so guys this was years ago this was about five years ago and I remember being like, um, you know, my friend Caroline, you've met her, she's now our friend. <laughs> Laurie and her became friends when she came over to the States, uh, came over to South Africa, to Cape Town. And I remember Caroline being on the phone with me and I'm telling her about this coach and she's like, I am not feeling your coach. Like all the things that you're telling me sound like you are being re-traumatized. And I thought, no, this is how coaching works. No, this is it. And she was like, you need to leave this relationship like pronto. And it took me three months to eventually get it and be like, oh my God, this is not a good situation for me. This is not what works for me. So how can someone know that this is a therapist that works for them or a coach that works for them and they're not going to come in and get re-traumatized all over again okay so it's a few things um i know i feel like therapists should always have therapists because we experience so much vicarious um so for me i see a therapist myself and from my personal experience, I fully vet the therapist. I do research. Yeah. <laughs> and I read the therapist. I read about reviews. Um, yeah. And see if anyone else has experiences. If there's no reviews out there, if there's a therapist that I want to see, I'll see if yeah. they provide, some therapists provide free consultations, like 20, 30 minute consultations. And that yeah. is a great time for you to ask them some key questions. Ask them if they have ever, if you're a person of color and you feel and you know within yourself that 
you feel some triggers or you feel that it may not be comfortable for you to work with a particular type of therapist, or if you feel that you could work with a particular therapist, a white therapist, and you want to know, have they worked with black clients before? Mm -hmm. Ask them. Because a therapist, I see therapists as doctors. You go to a doctor, yeah. if the doctor doesn't work for you, you, you still need help. You still have to yeah. see what the issue is. So you just go to another doctor and get a second opinion. You work with someone who works for you. Mm -hmm. So asking them, yeah. have they worked with people of color or worked with your particular issue? Asking them yeah. that question and finding out what type of modalities that they use, what type of experience they have. Where did they get their training? You can look at their site and read that, or you can ask them directly to explain that. And then mm. when they tell you the modality, research the modality. Learn about that modality. Mm. It's something that resonates yes. with you. So for example, I may tell you that I do cognitive behavioral therapy. What is cognitive behavioral therapy? Research that. Find out if that works for your particular concern. If you know that you have anxiety and you're reading that cognitive behavioral therapy is great for anxiety, <clears throat> there you go. You have a therapist that is experienced in that. And so you have that consultation, yeah. you get a feel for that person. Sometimes it's also in the feeling and the comfortable True. in the room. And so yeah. Just seeing if you like the way they move, the way they talk, the way they present themselves, um, if you feel that commonality, that energy, and then you give them a try. And it's okay to switch. Mm -hmm. After two or three sessions, mm -hmm. it's okay to switch. I know some therapists might get mad at me, but it's okay to switch because, <laughs> because I've done it. <laughs> I've yeah. done it one and I feel like okay this is not it I'm not getting the movement that I need and I looked for another therapist and I switched over and I tried them out so it's okay mm -hmm. it's, I think for a lot of people it's the permission to ask questions to educate yourself yeah. to do what you that this is your power you're in control yeah. you're the expert yeah. this is your opportunity to do that yeah, like one of the things that I love about what you've said is you can ask, you can check out other reviews. And I always encourage people, I say, especially for what I work with, right, in terms of coaching and people are like ancestral work. And I'm just like, no, go. I say to them, watch the videos. Then the people that you felt like you love their testimonials, contact them. Ask them questions. I'm not there, right? Because maybe they're saying something on video because it's me. Mm -hmm. But, and they want to please me, but maybe when they talk offline with you, they'll have something else that they tell you that may make you go, hmm, maybe not. Or make you go, hmm, yeah, this sounds like it's for me. So I feel like that is so important. And you and I have had this conversation how like, really vetting um, the people that we work with, you know, it's like, can you hold that space? Because sometimes a lot of crazy things come up in trauma work that will not just come up in any other work. And 
if I feel like someone cannot hold that space for me and the next day or the next week, I'm in a worse shape mentally, like what happened years ago when Caroline was like, I don't think this is the way that things should work. It's like, it doesn't, um, that doesn't help. But luckily for me, I was able to move out of that situation. And I did have someone that was looking out for me and saying, hey, have you left yet? I don't think this is actually making you a better person. Everything that you're saying is making me feel like you're losing yourself, all that. So please come back to yourself. So that's also very powerful. So what are some things that people should be on the lookout for? How do you know when you are starting to heal? And understanding, and I think some, someone in the Money Magic group, Putalang, said something very interesting. She said, healing is different to curing. Healing is not finding a cure. It's a journey. So what are some things that people should be on the lookout for as they start their healing journey for, uh, around trauma? How do you know that you are healing? And what are some basic, we talked a lot about the nervous system being on edge and calming, needing to calm the nervous system. Can you give maybe like two or three easy tips that people can use to calm the nervous system? And how do you know that these things are working? How, what are some things that they should be on the lookout for? Like, will your breathing be slower? What's happening? <laughs> well, when I think about healing, like you said, it's not so much of curing, it is a journey. And I feel as long as you're living life, there's going to be different highs and lows, and there's going yeah. to be different things that you experience. Yeah. And you're going to go through the hurt and the healing. So it's a constant process. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you, when I see healing, I see, When you mentioned the word healing, the word learning came into my mind. Learning. And healing, a lot of times when people think about healing, they just think of calm. And healing is Mm -hmm. not always calm. Um, Like (laughs) the stress and moving through from the freeze into the fight, that's not calm. (laughs) no and i love that you said that because sometimes healing really is learning to get to anger like literally i can't tell you how often i have to ask a lot of black women that are doing the trauma work you need to get to anger before anything else because there's this fear of being an angry black woman but yeah i interrupted but yeah i agree it's not always calm (laughs) And that's, but that's it. Healing is not always going to be calm and there's going to be various emotions that pop up. However, in that, you start to learn about yourself. Um, For me, I know there's been times where I suppressed my anger. And when I allowed myself to be angry, I realized, okay, this was really bothering me more than I thought. And that to me was healing to know that about myself, to understand about myself, that this was, uh, this was a boundary. This was something that had been crossed and I need to be able to set boundaries Mm -hmm. to deal with that so that I don't go back into that freeze response. I can stay in Mm -hmm. 
So healing is, it helps you to know what boundaries, it helps you to know yourself, to understand your own emotions, to understand just how you move through life. And, mm -hmm. and in order to heal, and when you say two things to learn to heal, one, like I said, having a therapist and that is one way to heal um, is by having a therapist to be able to process that. Now, one caveat too, because we talked a lot about being able to, about the body and about the body keeping score for trauma and understanding yeah. that is not just talk therapy. There are mm -hmm. therapists that are dance movement therapists. My therapist is actually a dance movement therapist. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> So, so do you guys do dance in your therapy session? <laughs> she may recommend, she may talk about different movements. Um, oh, nice. How my body, how do I move my body and how I'm to be able to like move through and to like really deal with different things. She may talk about how on a daily basis am I moving my body? What am I mm -hmm. doing um, with my body? So having someone who is able to deal with both is really helpful and have a knowledge of both. Even in my yeah. sessions, I have people to sit and to really feel what they're feeling at that point to really acknowledge that's, that's dealing with the body. That's more than just talk therapy. And yeah. so it's, it's a part of that. It's, it's also just being able to, utilize different things to help you open up that capacity to be able to cope with different things. I yeah. know for me, just little quick things, things that we've heard before is like doing deep breathing. Um, yeah. For me, I love to do, I don't, I may not do a whole yoga sequence, but I like mm. to go into forward fold when I feel really hyped up and anxious. Yeah. I will go into for forward fold to just like really release and to really like allow myself to stay, to really deal with that feeling right then and there, to just feel yeah. it, be present, to experience it, and then to just let it move through my body and to just move mm -hmm. on with the rest of my day. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I could say about different ways to heal. But the first thing is just having some kind of movement with your body, something to really pay attention to and be aware of your body. And then also, if needed, having someone there that can support you as you, as you mm -hmm. move your healing journey. Wow. Wow. Laurie, you have given us so much. More than I anticipated. Uh, we've gone through some incredible, um, I think you've just unpacked trauma so beautifully for us. You've taught us about vicarious trauma. You've taught us about collective trauma, intergenerational trauma, individual trauma. It's been amazing. So I know people are looking for therapists and you work via Zoom. You can take on clients internationally. So, and guys, you already know, Laurie is very well informed with uh, South African culture and Kenyan culture as well. But like, yeah, she's come to events in South Africa. 
No, she knows South Africa. She's been to the village, so she knows parts of South Africa that most South Africans don't know. She and I have gotten lost for days in wild places in South Africa. We've been lost. And when I say days, I'm not even saying it as a exaggeration. I mean, like, we were lost for days. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> we didn't know how to get to... Like, we got lost, and we ended up seeing, like, the Free State, the Eastern Cape. My dad wanted me to take Laurie on a scenic route, on the garden route from Pumalanga, and, yo, he got us lost forever, hey? Like, I was like, wow. It took us three days to get from Pumalanga to Cape Town, so we'd be lost. So she's a great, she's very well informed with different cultures and working with them. So how can people get hold of you if they're interested in working with you or just talking about trauma, interviewing you further? Yeah. Well, at this time, I am not in private practice. I am in the process of building that is something that I'm hoping to do is where I can build and I'm still trying to, when it comes to, when it comes to being a licensed clinician, there's different restraints that we have, especially when it comes yeah. to seeing people in different, in different countries. And so, wow. yeah, it's, it's, there's not a lot of, I know in the United States, there's not a lot of reciprocity when it comes to a licensed clinician. So I can only see people in Massachusetts. I can only, I cannot oh. use because it's not compliant in protecting people's privacy because it can be intercepted. It's a lot, yeah, it's layers, yeah. And so for me, um, I, I'm currently working on all of that and trying to, because I'm thinking of doing the therapy as well as coaching. So I'm really working the kinks and figuring that portion out because for some countries I may not be able to, and I've been trying mm -hmm. to do research for South Africa and I've been hitting a lot of dead ends and figuring that out. Um, but what I would suggest is that if you are in South Africa, the suggestions I made to find a therapist and to really vet them to please do that. Um, if you, and hopefully I do have a Facebook <laughs> account, um, a public account. Um, it's my full name, Lori Jones at LM, and Lori Jones LMHC, standing for Licensed Mental Health Counselor. So that is a place where you can connect with me um, as I start to get all this legality in the red tape <laughs> situated so that I can start to support more people because I do have a day job. And so I'm just finding yeah. that at this time. Yeah. But and okay. find Facebook there, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Guys, I will share Laurie's uh, Facebook profile link in the mailing list. And if you're on Facebook, um, I will have tagged her on this video. So if you're watching from Facebook, connect with her, chat with her, keep in touch with her. We're constantly talking and joking about her moving to South Africa. <laughs> so literally just like, 
um, being touched. She is an incredible resource. I know Laurie often says, but no, I'm still researching trauma. But when I literally like constantly send her these voice notes around how I see trauma playing out in the nervous system, how this would affect this. And then we end up having these insanely amazing discussions. She is very knowledgeable. And it is just, her thing is, she is super smart and super knowledgeable. And I'm just gonna say it for her because she's a little too <laughs> humble, right? But you guys got that from this video. So, <laughs> thank you so much, Lori. <laughs> I'm going to, I have learned to accept compliments, so I'm going to say thank you. <laughs> that is my personal work, <laughs> to accept that. Just accept it. Yeah. So thank you. So guys, <laughs> thank you, Money Magicians, for joining us. Um, I write a lot about trauma in the Wealthy Money blog, so check it out, wealthy-money.com forward slash blog. Check out our courses at Wealthy Money Academy, wealthy-money.com forward slash academy. Again, wealthy-money.com forward slash academy. Join the Wealthy Money Facebook group. Uh, we talk a lot about these things. And thank you so much, Laurie, once more. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Okay, bye, Money Magicians. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you find this podcast helpful and enlightening, please can you do me a favor and go leave the podcast a five-star review on iTunes or leave a comment on YouTube. And of course, share it with your family and friends. I would really appreciate it because it would help other money magicians who are looking to change their relationship with money find this podcast, which would really make my day. Also, as a bonus, if you're interested in changing your spending habits, I have a complimentary ebook for you. You can download it at wealthy-money.com forward slash workbook. Again, wealthy-money.com forward slash workbook. Have a fantastic day further and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Money Magic Podcast.